what do I need in terms of if I wanted to take the term an investor rest strategy in comparison to a permanent life uh, strategy? What is it that I need? What are the criteria and how much return I need to make to compare that? So if I wanted to adopt the term plus invest the rest strategy, what you're telling me is to achieve the same thing as a whole life, I really need to put this long term in a fairly high risk type of portfolio. The least attractive strategy is your term to 100, um, where you're investing in a balanced portfolio. So my assumption is that most people will come at investing without a fully aggressive uh, portfolio. So we said, okay, let's take a balanced portfolio. That's actually the least effective strategy from a current alive net worth point of view. The way that you and I have conceived kind of the conversation is it's very much about wealth accumulation and estate planning. Um, and uh, when it comes to that, there's still a debate. So it's not just medical professionals, it's, it's insurance professionals themselves. I think if you spoke to accounting professionals, there would be a variety of different opinions. Well, you guys know that I love to talk about insurances when it comes to personal finance. And you know that insurances are part of the protection level of personal finance planning. And so that's why insurance is a huge piece of that planning. And I love to talk about it. And it's no different today. However, today, what we're going to try to dive into is this controversy, this very polarizing topic of buying term insurance and investing the rest versus buying whole life insurance. Now, you will find people who are pro one school of thought versus other people who are pro the other school of thought. The reality is the truth is somewhere in the middle. And really, the truth is that the term insurance has its purpose and the whole life insurance has its own purpose. But what I commonly hear is that people say there is no purpose for whole life insurance. Just buy term and invest the rest and you'll be much better off. The reality is that there are purposes for both term insurance and whole life insurance. And we'll look into that as well. But today, we're going to be really diving deep into the strategy of buying term insurance and investing the rest. And to do that, I have with me back on the show, Jamie List. Jamie is the founding partner of Bearing Capital Partners. He has over 25 years of experience in advising and collaborating with business partners and medical professionals with their wealth management needs. Jamie spent the early years of his career working at insurance firms, planning firms, portfolio management firms, and even with accounting firms to develop his expertise. This resulted in founding Beeren Capital in 2005. He now provides advice primarily to medical professionals, senior executives, and small business owners and their families.
How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I am with uh, Jamie List. Jamie is a good friend, and we've done a podcast together already, and you've heard him talk about when we did the analysis on whether a physician or a professional should incorporate, and we did the analysis on incorporation versus no, no incorporation and on uh, PPP and uh, whole life insurance. So that was a podcast that we did with Jamie. This time around, I have Jamie back with us. So Jamie, say hello. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me back, Fu. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm good. I'm enjoying the sunnier weather that it will be is outside at least today. Yeah, but you know what? It's a beautiful day. It's really sunny and it's kind of mild today. So it's, it's a good day. So we have Jamie back today, and we're going to be talking about one particular topic that Jamie and I have been discussing quite a bit. So the topic is, you know, there's a debate in our community, and I and I think it's not just in our in our community, right, Jamie? The the debate is, you know, should I buy term insurance and invest the rest, or should I buy whole life insurance? This is a debate, I think, in a lot of the medical community because there's a lot of pull and very polarizing topic. But what what do you think? Is it something only in medicine among physicians or is this everywhere? No, I mean, it's, um, you know, this is really a, a conversation about you know, on the surface insurance. Um, and then as you kind of get deeper into it, just about wealth and, and, and estate planning strategies in general. I think if you even looked inside the insurance community, meaning the professionals that advise on and implement insurance, you'd find there was a, a healthy debate uh, disagreement, however you want to look at it, about what the right approach to you know funding various strategies are, and so the way that you and I have conceived kind of the conversation is it's very much about wealth accumulation and estate planning, um, and uh, and when it comes to that, there's still a debate. So it's not just medical professionals; it's it's insurance professionals themselves. I think if you spoke to accounting professionals, there would be a variety of different opinions. I think we're going to be able to get to today is. We'll stay away from opinion and we'll try to deal with fact and sort of clarify what 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 the implications are of kind of where people fall on the spectrum. Yeah, that's where I thought the discussion was when people are talking about term and investor rest versus whole life. For me, it's not just about the insurance. For me, it was a more holistic view about investment, uh, estate planning and capital gains and taxes at time of death. For me, it was about all that. It wasn't just about uh, in, uh, insurances. So you're right. We're right about what you said there. So how about we begin? Let's just talk about this concept of term insurance and investor rest. What does it mean? Where did it come from? What it what it means is, uh, or where it kind of where it kind of originates is. The insurance industry, well, let's step back and just kind of lay the groundwork. So whole life insurance uh, or permanent insurance in general is an insurance that you have generally a fixed period of payments. 
which is, you know, can be 10 years, 20 years, maybe 30, maybe for life, but generally you stop. Um, that policy will build up a cash value. Um, and that cash value will uh, end up sustaining the policy so you can stop premiums. And generally that death benefit grows. So the amount of insurance increases over time. Uh, there are two types of insurance policies in that permanent area. One is whole life and the other one is universal life. Um, whole life will, is what we're going to focus on today in that world because universal life has a, has a, it does kind of look a little bit like a buy term and invest the rest strategy. Um, and, uh, and so when you're exploring products, you can talk about universal life, but when we're looking at the strategies today, we'll talk just about whole life. So when you get to uh, that concept of buy term and invest the rest or buy term and invest the difference between the term cost and the permanent cost, term insurance is inexpensive when you're young. And the reason it's inexpensive when you're young is because the probability of you dying when you're young is lower. And in fact, the mortality curve follows an exponential growth um, uh, curve. So as you get older, each year, it becomes exponentially more of a chance that you're gonna pass away. So what happens with term insurance is it's very inexpensive when you're young um, and then becomes very expensive. So it is inexpensive when you're young. It becomes expensive when you are older. Um, and, and, and then it actually stops. For most companies, it will stop at age uh, 80, the term insurance, or maybe 85. There is a hybrid called term to 100 that we will talk about today, which is insurance that lasts your whole life. It's a fixed premium. Um, that's flat the entire way through your life and it lasts to age 100, hence the name term to 100. So those are the three things we're going to talk about today, a term insurance policy, term to 100 and, and whole life. The, the buy term and invest the rest says, look, instead of me spending money on, on an insurance policy in that whole life permanent world, I'm going to take my money and I'm going to invest the difference between a term insurance policy and the whole life policy in a market portfolio. That could be whatever you want to do. It's not, uh, you know, it's, we're not defining that yet. And the argument is that buying term, which is very inexpensive. In fact, uh, you know, most families, in fact, regardless of whether you should or shouldn't buy whole life insurance, most people have an, a very, very high need for insurance in their 30s and 40s, which is basically your home buying and child rearing years. And that need falls off in the near term. And then your long-term need becomes a smaller, although growing uh, estate need. So term insurance fits a very, very practical need, but for an estate planning point of view, which is uh, what happens when I die at a ripe old age of 90, not what happens if I die at the young age of 40, from an estate planning point of view, term insurance is completely inadequate because it expires before we are supposed to. That's the expression that the insurance industry uses. It is designed to stop paying before you do, and it becomes so expensive, you are very, very, very unlikely to keep it anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, in the order of five or six percent of the face value every year in the final ten years. So, if you're thinking about a million dollar policy, someone's going to ask you for fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year just to keep that policy around, and you may never get it paid out. So, it is rarely kept that late. So, uh, having said all that, buy term and invest the rest. Says instead of going whole life or permanent, I'm going to go term. Uh, 10-year term, or I'm going to go term to 100, and the remaining amount, or the equivalent remaining amount, I'll invest in a market portfolio. And I should, the, the thesis is, I should be able to beat the outcome from a wealth uh, enhancement point of view. I should be able to beat the outcome um, by investing wise. So that's kind of the, 
the general principle behind let's buy term and invest the rest or buy term and invest the difference. Okay, good. Very good explanation. A very good round explanation of where that philosophy came from. So in terms of the term insurance, you've got term 10, term 20, term 30, and now you've just brought up this term 100, which is covers you till age 100. Let's assume that someone doesn't die until 101. Uh, does that term 100 stops at 100 or after 100, they just assume you pay so much that they keep the insurance going? How do I understand the term 100? 10-year term, 20-year term, 30-year term. We'll deal with that first. Those, the numbers in the name refer to the time period for which your, um, uh, for which your premiums are fixed. Correct. The 10-year term is a fixed term of 10 years and there's a fix. And then at the end of that, they jump up for another 10 years and another 10 years and so on. Every company has a slightly different take on how that plays out. Um, some companies, um, once the first 10 years is up, actually they, they, instead of jumping up in the 10th year, they smooth it out and they kind of follow that mortality curve up. Um, in fact, the policy we use to compare, we use that. I think that's a, that's a smart um, way of doing it because it doesn't give you a shock in the 11th year if, if for some reason you're unhealthy and you still need the insurance. So 10-year term, 20-year term, 30-year term, that is the period for which the, uh, the, the premiums are fixed. Um, and the policy, the death benefit, the face value is also never changes. So it doesn't matter how long the term is, the face value doesn't change. Term to 100, it's the same. Your premium is fixed for a period, which is to 100. So it's not a fixed 10 or 20 or 30 years. It's however old you are to age 100. So uh, you've got, a, you've got a, an, an absolute, a, a, um, you know, reliable guarantee that your premiums won't change. Uh, and in fact, in, by law, they cannot. Um, now, when you get to age 100, in effect, your, your, your policy is done. Um, when you are going to put the policy in place, uh, I will sort of, a, as a caveat, without making a sweeping statement, there is, you read the policy wording, some contracts may become paid up. And what that means is there's no more premiums payable, but the insurance value still rolls around or still stays around. I, I just can't answer categorically whether it just disappears, but functionally, let's just say for today's purposes, all of our analyses we've done to age 90 anyway. Um, and so if it is a buying decision in there, then, then, you know, you'd have to discover which, but effectively, you know, you're, you're, um, you're pretty comfortable that, that you've got insurance until age 100, uh, in, at least in our scenarios. Okay, got it. So the permanent life insurance, because you're talking about, you know, let's invest a difference in the market. So we'll talk about, you know, in that philosophy, what are people trying to achieve in terms of rate of return in the market versus the permanent life? What is the rate of return in a permanent life? Just so that before we begin the discussion, what type of yield and what type of return are we talking about? Just so that we have an idea of what we're going to be, you know, further discussing. <clears throat> so the permanent policies, in particular, the, the participating whole life, those are two words that are used interchangeably, whole life and participating. Um, they are not exactly the same, but they tend to be used uh, interchangeably. So participating whole life insurance, to be specific, is a policy where all of the premiums of the policy owners go into one fund. And those premiums are invested uh, and, and the death benefit out from, the, from that participating fund. The cost of insurance that you pay or the premiums that you pay are sufficient to fund your own lifetime worth of death benefit, um, as is, you know, all other 
you know, people in that, in that fund. Most of the insurance companies now have a participating fund that is in excess of, I'll say, you know, probably some are more and some are less, but around $20 billion. These are very, very big uh, funds. They are legislated to have a moderate risk uh, profile. I believe there is a legislation that says you're limited to, and I think it's 20% equities. Real estate portfolios are allowed in those funds. There is an instance where um, policyholders may borrow against that. Those are in the uh, investment. There is an allocation for alternative investments that is available in there as well. So there's you know, a healthy portfolio that, that's available, um, but it is conservative. Um, it's very much like a pension. Um, it is very much like a pension fund that you, know, you would expect to see out of something like uh, you know, Teachers or Omers or Hoop, which is our Ontario uh, you know, sort of big three, I guess, um, and then around the world. Um, those big pension style funds have very, very long time horizons and very dependable outflows. So the, you know, the, the rate at which a population of human beings passes away is relatively predictable. So they have a very stable cash flow in, and they have a very stable cash flow back out, and they have a very, very stable investment management style. And that investment management style is regulated. So there is a limited amount of volatility and a limited amount of risk that the insurance companies in particular can take uh, to invest that. So that is what's happening inside that policy. Um, and the growth that you experience in the policy is, is relative to the growth that the, uh, the managers of the participating fund and therefore all of the participating shareholders will, or sorry, I said shareholders, um, policyholders will experience as a result. And you get a proportionate share of that participating policy um, revenue. From what I understand what you just said there, then the rate of return from that investment is conservative, balanced, moderate versus what I can do with the rest of my money. I control what I do with my money if I put it in the market. And I could do, I could decide to be conservative, I could decide to be balanced, or I could decide to be growth oriented. So depending on where I put my money with the remaining balance of my money, then the rate of return obviously will be different. Absolutely. So something to know about um, participating uh, policies in particular, however, though, is uh, without getting into the details, what happens when um, those policies are, are generating the returns is there is a smoothing function that is used to determine the returns. Uh, and so you don't have any fluctuation in returns. Um, I should step back. The PAR fund, the, the, the fund itself may experience returns that are higher or lower, but because they're smoothed over roughly a five-year period, the policyholders don't feel any fluctuation at all. And you tend to have these very, very long sort of sign curves of returns. In the mid 80s, these policies were returning in the 12% range. Right now, they're returning in the 5 to 6% range. And so you still have, um, you know, prevailing rates are going to have something to do with it. That's the majority where it is. And so that's why those, those numbers are lower now than they were in the 80s when rates were a lot higher. But what you can expect is a rate of return that's around 3 to 5% above inflation uh, over the long term. And again, that range is, is I'll say it's somewhat arbitrary, but just in terms of what I've seen from the different participating whole life companies that are out there and the, what they've given, uh, they, they seem to have that ability over the long term of the 30, 40 years to, to be in that range. So if I decided to buy term and invest arrest and I decide to put it in a conservative portfolio in the market, I would be expecting what, two, 3%? 
something of that sort. If I put it in something that is really uh, more risky, 100% equities, what am I expecting? Maybe 9, 10%. So if people are listening, we've had a great couple of years. And even the uh, pandemic absolutely. from absolutely. a stock market point of view was a very strange return profile in that we had, whatever, eight weeks of acute panic in the markets and then eight more months of, of, of a run-up of, of, in particular, that what we call the pandemic stocks, right? Where you had uh, those stay-at-home um, companies uh, or work-from-home companies did amazing and they really pulled the markets up. So some of the data that we will look at later, but we've got data that goes back to 1926. The, the data set I pulled today was from 1950-something, I think. But the long-term rate of return on U.S. equities, I, I believe, um, is around 10. Right. Um, and uh, and so in the long term return of, of U.S. bonds and by say U.S. The U.S. market is a bit more robust than Canada, certainly. And, and, and well, the bit is significantly larger and it's a it's a more diversified, um, but it's a good proxy for what equities can do over time, um, albeit it may be a little bit overvalued right now. Um, and U.S. bonds, I think, are around seven. Um, having said that, uh, people would expect more than that because they've received that recently. And right now, um, with the fear of you know, having to pay for all of the stimulus and you have people a bit pessimistic about where things are going, people are expecting a lot lower. Um, we'll be talking about rates of return in the future and people say, well, do you really think I'm going to get 5%? It's been so good. So we're not going to talk about near-term rates of return. We're going to talk about very long-term rates of return today. And those are high single digits for equities, mid single digits for bonds and inflation at a four, uh, I think it's 4.3 over the same time period. It is important to note that what that means is that bonds are getting around two or 3% after inflation and equities are getting about 5% after inflation, uh, five or six. Um, and if you look back and you're maybe just the people are listening and even yourself, do a bit of thought of a bit of a thought experiment. And really over time, when the returns are relatively good over a five year period, the markets are generally giving you back about 3% for bonds and 5% to 6% for equities over inflation. So that is what somebody should expect when they're doing very long-term projections out into the future. Yeah. Uh, one more thing that is before fees and expenses, mm -hmm. um, which is something that, that, that all investors should, should watch out about and be aware of. Um, that's an index return, not a, not a, not a achieved return. Very good point. Very good point. So now that we talked about, okay, the philosophy behind term and invest the rest. Now we talked a little bit about, you know, what can we expect in terms of long-term investment in, in returns. Let's now talk about, we've made a comparison and you've drawn this out into a graph. Two things we're gonna talk about. So one is how does it compare if I use a term plus invest the rest strategy versus I use a permanent life participating life strategy? That's the first thing we're gonna answer. But to put it in another way, we're going to answer it another way. What do I need in terms of if I wanted to take the term and invest the rest strategy in comparison to a permanent life uh, strategy? What is it that I need? What are the criteria and how much return I need to make to compare that? This is a, a female aged 45. What we had assumed is that this individual has enough money in retirement, uh, in retirement savings accounts, I should say, to have the ability to make a choice about what to do with an additional twenty-five thousand dollars. 
So keeping it really simple, this person that we're talking about has saved all they need for retirement. And now they've got an additional $25,000. And we did use this as a, as a corporate setting. I mean, our last podcast um, that I, certainly I was a guest on, uh, where it was where we spoke about the benefits of incorporating. And so this is targeted to the people that um, have incorporated and are trying to figure out what to do with uh, a policy in there. So this is, uh, you know, a net of that. And so what we did is we took $25,000 and we put it into a whole life insurance policy. And in the graph that's in front of me, what you can see is the blue line is your whole life. There's a burgundy line, which is the term to 10 year term, buy term and invest the rest. There is a, a gray line, which is um, by your T to 100. And then there is a orange line, which is also T to 100, but with a more aggressive portfolio. And then we can start to think about what do we have to do to answer your second question? What do we have to do to get, um, to get, to beat, if you will, or to achieve the, your thesis of being able to buy term and invest the difference. So we're looking at net worth too, before we get started. So this is net worth, which is, this is the amount of money you have access to while you are alive. So it's not the death benefit. It's not that it's just a universal, sorry, a um, whole life as an investment that is, that is redeemable or usable. The value of your whole life policy to you alive at age uh, 90 is approximately 3 uh, 2.75 million. The next closest strategy, well, let me step back. The least attractive strategy is your term to 100, um, where you're investing in a balanced portfolio. So my assumption is that most people will come at investing without a fully aggressive uh, portfolio. So we said, okay, let's take a balanced portfolio. That's actually the least effective strategy from a current alive net worth point of view. Um, because the premiums are high enough and the returns are, are not sufficient um, to, uh, to, to meet and exceed the uh, whole life results. So the next attractive strategy from a, 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 a living net worth point of view is to buy 10-year term and invest the rest. And then the almost equal to whole life is a policy where I, I built a portfolio that was 100% U.S. equities. And to get closer, I had to actually make my portfolio 85% U.S. equities and 15% U.S. small cap equities. Hmm. So the 85% was large cap S&P 500, but I had to include a small cap uh, to get that return up to where it needed to be. And for all intents and purposes, although there is a little gap on our graph here, let's say at age 90, uh, we've achieved our goal, which is to have a, a portfolio solution, buying term and investing the difference that is equal to whole life. Got it. Okay, at around 2 million. So just to quickly recap, whole life three, uh, 2.75, uh, buying 10-year term and investing in what I would say is an aggressive all equity portfolio, 2.75. Um, the buy uh, term to 100 and invest in a balanced portfolio leaves you with about 1.75. And the buy 10-year term and invest the rest leaves you with just under two. Okay. okay? So this is, we, you use as an example for the whole life, 45-year-old female, obviously uh, no medical history, and you're using 25000 as a premium and 25000 as a premium every year for a 45-year-old female. We're talking about a death benefit of how much? Half a million or a million? Uh, it's $413,000, uh, $413,151,000. So it's 413,151 is the death benefit. 
Okay, so let's call, should... it, let's call it 420,000 yep. uh, in, uh, in death benefit, plus you're, you're using this uh, premium to, to achieve a death benefit, but also to have a living benefit net worth of that amount uh, during lifetime. And, and this goes to, in your graph, up to age 90. Yes. In your term and invest the rest strategy, the one that's the most aggressive is the one that you invested in 85% U.S. equities and 15% U.S. equities, but small cap. Correct. To achieve that aggressivity, aggressivity to try to mirror the returns of what it would have been given on a uh, permanent life. Am I understanding this right so far? Yep. Yeah, that's it. So, so yeah, that yellow line, the, the two lines that are close together, which is the whole life strategy or the buy term and invest the rest strategy of the three of them that meets the whole life numbers is that aggressive, uh, that aggressive investment strategy. Just as, a, as an aside to um, one other thing to note, the individual in question, our sample uh, client, she has invested $25,000 a year for only 20 years. So there is right. an inflection point. You can see at around age 65, there yeah. are those premiums or that saving stops in all of the scenarios. So right. in all of the scenarios, this individual basically earns, earns an additional $25,000 per year and then stops doing that at age 65. So the remaining years after 65, you're funding your insurance premiums um, from cash in the case of the invest the difference. In the case of the whole life, we picked a whole life policy that has a guaranteed 20-year payment period and does not run any further. So that's a, so that those premiums stop, whereas all the other strategies, they have to continue for this, this whole analysis to, to make sense, to be a, an apples to apples comparison. Right. And that is an important point, though, a very, very important point, because in the uh, permanent life strategy, I pay for 20 years. I know I have to pay for 20 years. It's a 20 year commitment. But after 20 years, the policy has enough cash to self um, to self-pay itself, and I no longer have to contribute more. Right. But in the term, and by the way, it's a term to 100. Uh, after after the 20 years, I'm still paying. I'm still every 20 every year. I'm still putting in 25,000. So, which means at age 65 till age 100, I still have to put another 35 years of 25,000 each year. No, not exactly. So in the in all cases, I'm spending, I'm putting $25,000 per year for 20 years into these strategies. Both of these? In all of them. Okay. At the 20th year, the whole life, there are no more costs. Okay. And there's no more savings. In the buy term and invest the difference 10-year term, I've got a cost of around, I think it's around $2,000 per year that is coming back out of my investment portfolio as a withdrawal now, because I'm not putting any more in, I'm taking it out. And in the term to 100 strategies, after the 25th year, I've got to spend from my investment portfolio, I've got to pull out $5,000 a year in order to pay for the insurance premium. Oh, got it. Right? Got it. So, so what I did was we're, we're funding the policies from $25,000 in the first 25, 20 years. Yeah. Once we hit age 65, the, the whole life does not cost anybody anything anymore. Yeah. The other three strategies do cost something, but they're being funded from the investment savings that we've accumulated over the first 20 years. Got it. Okay. So in, in, the case, in the case of the term to 100, in your illustration here, 
that 45 year old lady who's now 65 has to take how much out every year? Uh, in the case of term insurance, the 10 year term insurance, it's going to be around 2000 a year at that time. It goes up as high yeah. as 25 actually for her yeah. later on. And then it stops at age 80. And for the, um, the term to 100, it's, it's $5,200 a year, 5,200 a year for the rest of their life. It has to come out or the policy is, uh, is canceled. Got it. Okay. So those are the, so in, in your graph, obviously the worst example is the uh, term to 100, but in a very, uh, sorry, in a balanced portfolio. The, the, a little bit better would be the term 10, but the term 10 uh, and plus investor rest, where did we invest it? Same, same exact portfolio. Same exact portfolio. Which as they, as, so we invested it, the term 10 and the term 100 balanced. Yeah. They're both invested in a 60-40 portfolio, which is sort of a standard pension style portfolio for, for a long-term investor. Got it. So invested the same. The yellow line, which is the aggressive one, that's the only one that's invested differently of those three by term and invested difference. Okay. So now I guess this takes us into the segue of, so if I wanted to adopt term plus invest the rest strategy, what you're telling me is to achieve the same thing as a whole life, I really need to put this long-term in a fairly high risk type of portfolio. Yeah, yeah you have to put it into a, a 100% equity portfolio um, in, order to, in order to do that. That's, that's, and not only that, but it has to be 100% equity, but you also have to kind of lean towards you know, a marginally more risky profile. I mean, 15% small cap equities is not a particularly big risk relative to just an all S&P 500. Um, but it's, it's, and the return profile is definitely better, but it is a, it's a greater risk reward profile than just the S&P 500, which is US equities, large cap US equities, um, or the initial portfolio that we, we had in the other one, which is a balanced portfolio uh, that has much less of a, of a risk profile, much lower drawdowns, less time underwater um, and by underwater i mean from peak to to so you hit a peak in your investment portfolio it drops down by x percent and the amount of time it takes to get back to par um uh, well i won't say par but the amount of time it gets back to where it was when it dropped originally um you know in the united states equity uh, market in from 2000 to 2010 um the s p 500 was basically underwater for about a 10-year period before it kind of got back up to where it started so that's a that's a significant amount of risk that, that a person has to commit to uh, in order to make that strategy work. It is not outside the realm of possible, but the 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 way that you and I conceived kind of coming at this in an even-handed way was not it's not possible. So if someone tells you it's not possible, that's not true. But what is required is an appetite for risk, which is in excess of what most people are willing to do. Um, and then the other piece of it, uh, sort of just to, to kind of jump maybe into, I think this is going to say with that is uh, when I'm 80, I'm very unlikely. It, it is very unlikely. I should say that I'm going to want to have a portfolio that is exposed to 100% equities. And so the buy term and invest the difference argument is one that does not recon recognize the practicalities of what ends up happening in the life cycle of an investment, which is your strategy that you're doing when you're 45 needs to be human proof. You need to you need to do something in your estate planning that, that you won't mess up 
whether you mean to or you don't, or that somebody else won't mess up, whether they mean to or they don't, um, because of the choices that are made down the road. So, you know, if this individual, our, our, our fictional individual, had a buy term and invest the rest strategy, and they hit the age of 80 in, in, the, sp- um, in the spring of 2000, and they had zero rate of return in their all equity portfolio from March of 2000 until, you know, 2010, and they were 90 and they passed away, their buy term and invest the rest strategy would have been, um, it would have not performed the way that they had thought it would have. So you're saying a few things here. Let me just summarize uh, so sure. that it's clear in my, in my mind here. The person who took the participating life strategy, she has a commitment for 20 years. And this is a commitment. This is a forced saving. So that's the, that's the human part is you, you need to understand there is a commitment for 20 years or whatever year you've decided to do. You could, someone could do a, 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 a 10 pay too, right? But, but here you chose yeah. a 20 pay. So assuming that someone has said, I am committed for the next 20 years, that's the forced commitment. In the, in the buy term and invest rest, there is no forced commitment. I mean, you could do it if you want. Some years you could decide not to invest. Some other years you, you get lazy, you forgot. So, but to, to make this work, that same person needs to, on its own <laughs> intuition, own innate nature to say, I'm going to commit to this for 20 years as well even though that commitment is not forced upon them, but they have to do it just to, just to break it even to the, to the same as the um, whole life strategy. That's the first thing. The second thing is you're saying, and you're right, even it doesn't have to be age 80. At age 65, most people don't want to be 100% in equities. Um, and this is what we've been taught for a long, long time. You know, Once you reach age 60, 65, you should probably do a more balanced or more conservative portfolio. So the question is, how many people have the appetite of being 100% in equities at age 60, 65 and beyond? That, that's hard to do. Yeah. And, and the third is, well, not only do we, not, not only do we need to be in a 100% equity, we now have to uh, take on more risk of being 15% in small caps as well. Uh, and so the human, the human proof here is, you know, could this be done over a long stretch period of time, especially after the age 65, where, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about you, but already I have difficulty remembering things and I have difficulty, you know, processing information quickly. So how is it at age 65? How is it at age 80 to process that type of information and understand the risk profile at that age? It's always great when you're doing, when you're doing a plan to make sure that you're, you're not planning yourself into a corner. So some financial plans can become very intricate and their intricacy is their downfall. Um, some financial plans can, um, will rely on great big rates of return, which are totally achievable. So I know that I can prove that you can get a high rate of return and it's doable, but is your, is your financial plan and are your estate plans human proof? Bearing in mind, part of the reason you do estate planning is because it's a time when the family is generally in crisis. Either a person is hurt or dying or, um, or sick, if the family's unity is strong, they're still in crisis or where wealth is involved, unfortunately, the family's unity is not strong and the family is in crisis interpersonally. 
you know, something like a portfolio that's invested in 100% equities is going to appear very irresponsible and unacceptable to somebody 30 or 40 years down the road. And they will make changes likely um, to defend against possible downside, et cetera. So I'm, I'm sort of imagining a situation where a, a, a child steps in and says, oh, this is totally wrong. I think the best way of saying it is a buy term and invest the difference is a very doable strategy. It is achievable. It is not sustainable. And there's a difference in terms of what you're trying to do. I'm trying to sustain an outcome over a 40-year period. I am very unlikely to be in a situation where I can do that, um, although it's not without its possibilities. And I think you're going to ask me later on about where I think it would be applicable, because I think there are some. But for the most part, it is not a sustainable approach to investing that you're going to want to live with for uh, your entire life. Let's talk a little bit about that before we talk about who is this uh, suitable for. I have actually the estate outcome. Do you want to talk about that after you ask me this question? Yeah, it's not so much a question as a comment. Uh, and we'll go there right after this. The comment is, you know what? We started by talking about this, not because of the insurance nature only, right? Uh, we, you and I said, we're not just talking about the insurance here, right? We're talking about the holistic planning, the estate planning, and the tax planning, which is what you're going to come to in a minute. Because in the in the insurance, if we just if we just drill down on the insurance part, you know, in the term ten, for example, after a certain age, that person will not be willing to purchase additional term ten past age 65, 75, 85. So that insurance part is gone. In, yeah. that, in that particular strategy, whereas in the strategy of the participating life, that strategy is still there, that insurance is still there. For the term one to 100, obviously that, that insurance part is still there. And now the other part that we didn't really talk about was the taxes. So at a time of death, at deemed disposition, there is a difference already between the two strategies that we didn't really talk about. Is that what we're going to talk about now or in the next slide? So it's in the, it's in the next slide. That's where it'll really kind of uh, hit home. So perfect. Um, so what you see now is a very different outcome uh, in terms of, of differences. So with the, you know, again, for, I'm just going to explain it for the people who are listening. So we have four, uh, four outcomes again. The term 10 outcome is completely unacceptable because our, our policy ends at age 80. There is no more death benefit. And so the estate value of our insurance, sorry, of our buy term and invest the rest strategy, it loses $400,000 in one year or 400 and whatever the number was, I think 420 in one year. So when we're looking at the long-term, even though there are no premiums payable at the age of 90, it is behind the, uh, the rest of the strategies by a good clear $200,000. Buying term 100, investing in a balanced portfolio, it gets you near 2 million. Buying whole life gets you to about 2.8. And buying term to 100 and investing in our um, all equity portfolio, which on the graph here says AE versus BAL, balanced. So our all equity portfolio at the age of 90 gets close after all taxes are payable. And so let's just say they're roughly equal. And that's the whole point is, my 100% equity portfolio basically gets me there over a, uh, what is it, a 35 to 40 year period, 45, I should say 45 year period 
because I've invested aggressively and I've matched it, even though the whole life policy has better tax advantages, even though the, um, you know, the, there's no tax paid along the way, the aggressiveness of the rate of return is sufficient to match the strategy both while I'm alive and at, at after death as an estate benefit. The term to 100, all equity portfolio and the whole life portfolio, which meet almost to each other, they don't behave the same on the way through. The whole That's life right. policy is very linear, whereas the, um, the term to 100 all equity uh, outcome is sort of concave and it kind of grows very quickly near the end in order to meet that goal, which means 10 years prior, the whole life is definitely better. But at the age of 90, it really starts to get close. The reason is um, your whole life policy grows. Um, so your death benefit is growing. That's very tax efficient. So in the early years, you have a growing tax efficient outcome. Your uh, term to 100 outcome starts at whatever, 420,000, which is the insurance. And then that is fixed the whole way. So in the early years, that's you're behind because you're not growing your death benefit. You're just growing, which is tax advantage in all cases. You're just growing the investment portfolio, which is tax suboptimal. It's not bad. It's not the worst, but it's suboptimal when we distribute it. Halfway through, the portfolio starts to get big enough, but now we hit age 65. And if you recall, in the buy term and invest the difference scenario, all three of them, I still have to fund my insurance premiums, whereas in the whole life, I stop. So from 65 until 80, let's say, there is limited growth because even though the policy, sorry, even though the, the investment portfolio is growing, I still have to fund the policy. At around 80, so but in the last 10 years, the growth now starts to become substantial enough where it really takes off and allows that strategy to meet, uh, you know, to meet up with roughly, again, the same numbers as um, the whole life policy. So you're you're really getting much of the big, the, the gap is, is being closed in that last 10 years. Right. So what I'm seeing here is in comparison to the participating life strategy, the one that is the term plus invest the rest from age, I would say age six in your graph here, it's almost like age 55, 56, all the way to 87, 88 represents a huge, huge gap um, in, in, in terms of your estate worth. At the end, at age 90, I'll get there, but in between, there's a huge gap there. And should, should that person, that female 45 who started at, at age 45, should she pass away at age 70, for example, there's a huge gap in the estate worth. Agreed, there is. Yeah. So, for if we're talking about anything else but a but a dying at the a ripe old age of ninety, the all three buy term and invest this, the rest uh, scenarios are suboptimal. Right. Um, and just to be fair, if we took this out to ninety five or one hundred, the term to one hundred aggressively invested would exceed the whole life return. Absolutely. So if you if you do get that far then the strategy works and, and the thesis plays out. And in fact, in uh, you know, at age 90, it doesn't cross, it crosses at 91 and then it becomes significant thereafter. Um, but uh, again, um, you know, we generally show these numbers out to age 90. Um, and, uh, and that's also what life expectancy is looking like these days with all of the actuarial numbers built in anyway. So I think that's a reasonable number to, to use as a terminal. But yeah, if you were to die at age 75, you'd be, 
sort of eyeballing it, but you'd be about $500,000 behind in, in the buy term and invest the rest strategy, no matter which one you were in. Right. And in the, in the most aggressive, which is the term to 100, all equity, you're taking a lot, well, taking a lot, you're taking risk in comparison to the participating and you're doing that for, so age 55 to age 85, let's say that's a good 30 years. So for a good 80 years, you're taking on more risk than you probably should. But that again, that's assuming that past age 60, 65, that you are still on the all equity train. Yep. Right. Yeah. With, with that assumption. Yeah. And I think uh, that's it. And two, just to help people understand what, what we mean by you're not taking any risk. Um, one of the features of a whole life policy and participating in whole life policy is uh, the cash value you have in any given year, once it's been declared and your policies increase in value, uh, it, it can't go down. There, there's no mechanism for it to go down. So you have virtually, you have a, you have a guaranteed cash value. Um, I don't want to confuse terms because there's a, such thing as a guaranteed cash value, which is that base amount, but you have a cash value once declared, it cannot go in the reverse. Um, and so you don't have any market downside associated with a whole life policy. There just simply is not a way for it to go down unless you decide to take money out of that policy on your own, which is again, an entirely different issue. So let's come to the question of, okay, what is maybe, what is the flaw in our thinking uh, that we didn't really talk about? If someone chooses, let's say a participating life strategy versus a term plus invest the rest strategy. I mean, they're not all great and everything's beauty. Like there, there are some flaws to both of these strategies. So let's just talk about the whole life first, sorry, the participating life first. What are the, some of the flaws that you think could, that people need to be aware of? So this analysis is all or nothing in any one of the four strategies. That's the first flaw. If I was going forward and making a recommendation to an individual, we would never make an all or nothing strategy because different factors affect each of these strategies differently. So we do know that the full, as soon as we buy the whole life policy, all of the things are guaranteed, all of the things, all of the features are guaranteed, but I still have to fund it. I still have to come up with the money to make this work. And I have to do that for 20 years or 10, depends on it. And we can manipulate the policy down the road. But um, in the case of a whole life policy, you do need to be comfortable and confident that the funding level is appropriate. If in my example, you know, if, if you recall back to how I started, this person has all of their retirement needs taken care of. And what I would say is that means, and then some. Yeah. So there's, there's additional liquidity out there in a non-insurance strategy because the insurance policy is less flexible than an investment portfolio. So I would want to have both available. Um, I would want to use my whole life portfolio to defend assets from an estate planning point of view, rather than to replace them. Um, because I do need liquidity. Uh, it's the same reason. I mean, if you and I sat down and did the math on owning a home, maybe not so much where prices are right now, but over the last 40, 50 years, you can make a really great case. The best investment you could ever have made is buying real estate in the greater metropolitan Toronto area. However, it doesn't produce an income. Well, sorry. My principal residence doesn't produce an income. It may have gone from $40,000 in the 70s to two or $3 million, depending on where you bought in, let's say, Toronto. Um, but it doesn't make it a good investment in the absolute. The numbers are good, but not qualitatively. It's not ticking off all the boxes. 
So I think that would be the hole in, in our thinking, which again, we're acknowledging out of the gate is, is not the only strategy that you should be using, whether it's in or outside of a corporation. And if I had that $25,000 and I wasn't being asked just to do some math, I would say, well, we're going to take that $25,000 and do a little bit of both because I'd like you to have some flexibility and I'd like you to have the ability to create opportunities. That's what wealth is about. So good wealth planning. I can spend money without fear of depleting it, right? It works no matter what, whether things are going well or whether things are going not well. And I get to take advantage of opportunities. And although a, a whole life policy is flexible, it is a less flexible tool or asset than an investment portfolio. Okay, good. What you're saying is, well, obviously in the participating life strategy, there's a commitment issue and there's a liquidity issue as well. Mm -hmm. So what about the flaws in the term and investor risk? We've, we've spoken to a few of them already. Are there a few more that we didn't talk about because it wasn't in your graph? Let's start with the, the potential, the possibilities of the buy-term investor rest. There's a small but reasonable subset of individuals who might actually benefit from, from a buy-term investor rest scenario. You know, we don't recommend that people invest with leverage almost ever. Having said that, when, when I'm building a real estate portfolio, or if I were to build a real estate portfolio, I should say, it, you can very responsibly deploy leverage and, and multiply your returns that way. If I'm a real estate investor, a leveraged real estate investor, um, I have a client who I walk through the numbers as we've shown them today. That client happens to be a private equity fund manager. Um, and I showed the numbers to this individual and we looked at their rates of return and the rates of return of their asset class, which are in the double digits almost all of the time, albeit highly illiquid. And we agreed that by term and invested difference, if you have private equity as your main investment, possibly, not possibly, quite frankly, is going to be a better investment, both in the near and the long term. There are some situations where it's possible um, to have rates of return that are in excess of what would be required to get there. Back to the flaw of the, of the buy-term and invested difference. And I think this, um, the strategy comes from, an, it, the real flaw is buy-term and invested difference is not a strategy. It's actually an objection. The objection is, I don't want to buy whole life from, from an insurance company. Um, it tends to be focused around the fact that, you know, that it's, a, it's uh, in its most negative iteration. Oh, well, these, you know, the insurance industry is just, you know, pushing this, et cetera. So if you can accept the positive attributes of, of, a, of a whole life insurance policy, and it is properly advised and implemented by the professional um, in the right situation, in the right circumstances, then the, the merits of that strategy are, are quite robust. And by term and invest the difference really seems to be an objection to that recommendation rather than a viable strategy for a person. And, and really where it kind of, where, where, and you know, I, I sell and get paid to sell insurance and the industry actually, that's how it works. It pays commissions for, for better or for worse. The view that the person that's selling it is kind of pushing it onto the, onto the client is where this objection comes from. Well, it's by term and invest the difference. So if, an, if a consumer is feeling that way, then my argument would be to their defense, they have been pushed into something that they're not comfortable with. And by term and invested difference is a rational reaction to feeling uncomfortable about a long-term commitment. If there is a professional uh, who is advising by term and invested difference, I think you got a high, there's a higher standard we have to hold the two and examine numbers like this and see, well, what do you really have? What does your client have to do today, tomorrow, 
10, 15, 30, 45, 50 years from now to make buy term and invest the difference or buy term and invest the rest be a, a viable strategy? And the answer is that is a very fragile strategy. It is, it is one that does not survive the test of qualitative factors like who is going to invest this way for the next 45 years and quantitative factors, which is uh, there are very few people, very few, although there are some who spend the bulk of their life with a all equity or nearly all equity portfolio. It is not a likely outcome that is reasonable to expect. And so those are the flaws that, that come out of that, which is your investment strategy, your wealth planning strategy, your estate planning strategy should not be an objection to what you don't want to do. It should be a plan that you have. And that's really the, the issue behind buy term and invest the rest. You know what? You, I, for me, for me, you hit it on the nail. You hit it on the nail. Every single colleague that I have been talking to who are against participating life, and for the reasons you've mentioned, it's a commitment, it's 20 years, the advisor is making a lot of money, uh, they're selling me something I shouldn't be buying, I don't understand it, it's too complicated. For whatever objection they put in front, their answer has always been, well, let's determine invest the rest. Because as you say, it's an alternative to that proposition. It, it was never a proposition to begin with. And, and you're absolutely right that, that this, this alternative comes from the fact that people have all these arguments against participating life. But as a strategy, strategy itself, as I'm looking at your graph right now, between the age of 55, 50 something to the age of 87 there's such a huge gap that if i don't die at the age of 90 but i die at the age of 65 70 71 79 80 there's such a huge gap in the estate that who would ever want this right and i'm looking at that i'm like why would anybody propose a strategy well the reason is because they were objecting to something else you hit it on the nail for me yeah, I mean, you know, look, it comes back to, you know, um, you know, I, I, you're an astute observer of finances. So you may have noticed this, but as someone who's been doing, who's been in his career now since the mid 90s, I've noticed that in twice in my career, there's been a, a huge number of uh, discount brokerage ads. And one of them was at the end of the 90s. And again, today, we're getting lots of discount brokerage ads. I have zero access to grind with that. The only point I would make is, we are at the end of um, a time when, in particular, United States equities um, and growth equities in general have done very well. I don't have any way of gauging what the frequency of a buy term and invest the rest or buy term and invest the difference um, uh, you know, uh, swell would come, but I suspect it was a very attractive thing to recommend at the end of the 90s because rates of return had recently been so robust in the 20% return for most of the last five years of the decade, with the exception of 98 we're kind of in the same place with U.S. equities now, notwithstanding, well, not even notwithstanding, even though we went through a pandemic at the beginning of 2020, uh, 2020, sort of the market, I should say, we all went through it for two years, but the market really went down. These returns continued and were very robust, again, for seven of the last, uh, sorry, five of the last seven years. When someone says, oh, I can buy term and invest the difference, it may be that they're looking at their investment portfolio and saying, oh, I can very clearly get 15% return every single year. That mathematically is unlikely to occur. 
So maybe that's to answer this is maybe just answering a previous question, which is there's another flaw in that buy term invested difference, which is if you really want to be sure about what you're going to get, you need to look at what the rate of return is for equity portfolios, but for many, many years. If I really wanted to do this uh, term and investor rest strategy, because that's the strategy I want to do it, not because I'm objecting to something, who would be the best people suitable? What kind of characteristics and what kind of environment or, or family dynamics would be suitable for this? So, you know, someone with a, a considerable appetite for, for um, risk. Well, and to be fair, you know what, like if someone's not incorporated, the tax results at the end of the day are not quite as separate depending on how it is. So, you know, we didn't do a comparison in an in a individual scenario. Uh, it's going to be better because the tax outcomes in a corporation, they're, they're, they're more, there's more downside not having insurance in a, in a corporate setting than there is in a personal setting. I'm going to say I suspect, but I'm pretty sure that if we did this analysis, all of these lines would be a little bit closer. In fact, they would look a lot more like our first slide, which is the um, uh, the net worth slide. It would just be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more um, uh, uh, tighter. There still would be that bow in the estate plan in the middle, and so you'd top that up with further insurance. And again, that would cost more. So then it would off the numbers would change again. So you know it, it would still be doable, but again, I think you'd, you'd find that the the actual outcome in the lifetime of somebody who dedicated themselves to this strategy, bearing in mind that, you know, you got to live for many, many years with a drawdown um, in some cases in equities. Um, it's, it's not entirely likely that that is something that's going to occur. So I think the person that wants to do it has got to be someone who has a structural capability. And I say that as opposed to a decision-making capability, like to beat the markets but a structural capability being in an asset class or in a business where they can deploy their capital at a much higher rate than the markets, the public markets can return. And the examples I gave of real estate or um, you know, leverage real estate in particular, um, or uh, private equity, something in that, or if I own my own business and by owning my, I mean, on my own operating business, where reinvesting in my business will give me a rate of return that's greater than what I can get it in, in the markets. All of those are circumstances where that buy term and invest the rest argument becomes very valid, very valid. Makes sense. Um, Makes because sense. those are great big numbers. So yeah. if I own a manufacturing company and I spend a million dollars on insurance or I spend a million dollars on buying a new piece of equipment that doubles my profit, well, like hands down, that, that, that investment in my business is a better investment. For your audience, which is primarily you know, um, medical professionals, either incorporated, uh, incorporated or unincorporated, um, there's not that reinvestment opportunity. There is not that private equity opportunity reasonably, um, although you may dedicate your investment strategy there. And you know, real estate might be the only thing that's accessible in that situation if, if that's where you've decided to, to dedicate your resources. But, um, but there are definitely scenarios um, where you could very meaningfully um, sort of win the buy term and invest the difference. But I think, again, like I said, it has to be something structural in terms of how your life plays out rather than the decisions you make in the public markets. Right. I mean, you make a good point. Uh, you would probably come out ahead if you are investing in real estate in a, in a market that's doing well. Obviously, if I invest in real estate in a crashing market like the U.S. in 2008, that would not be, that would not be advisable. 
um, if I was if I was using that money and deployed it to fund my business and operate my business, that makes sense as well. And again, this is assuming that I'm still running my business after the age of 65, or I'm still playing in the real estate market after the age of 65. With those, with those again, same assumptions. But I would be fair when I'm making my these are the people who can beat it. Yeah. My assumption is they would significantly beat the buy term and invest a difference outcome for the first 20 or 30 years. And then when they kind of settled down and retired, it doesn't matter. You could put your money in T-bills. What they've done is so so great and far ahead. So that's the profile of somebody who can beat it is someone who can do it in the first 20 or 30 years. And then they can be very secure and safe and conservative with their decisions when they're 70 and 80. Uh, and again, that's different than the market portfolio where I have to invest aggressively right to age 90. That real estate professional, that private equity professional, that manufacturing person, they've built equity in their businesses. They've done it until they retire. When they retire, they're way further ahead. And, and by the way, reasonably in that scenario, a number of them would probably make the decision to invest in a whole life portfolio after the fact, assuming they were still insurable because they now have a tax problem. Uh, <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that's so what once I they're wanted. done, they may say, okay, well, now that I can't invest the rest in something like real estate or private equity or a manufacturing company, now it's time for me to sit down and think through what, what the valuable assets are. And those people invariably choose a permanent policy because they've got, it ticks off all the boxes it is. It's there at death. It grows consider consistently. It's well invested. It requires zero effort. You know all of those things. Right. And in the case in the case of someone who's incorporated or even not incorporated, the proceeds, the death benefit, comes out tax free. Right. Yep. And so it is very ironic. It is very ironic because that's the point I wanted to make: is that in a holistic financial plan and wealth plan, when you take into account the transfer of wealth, the estate planning, and the tax planning, people who have reached that type of wealth will intuitively come back to this product of the participating life because it meets so many checkboxes for them at time of death and at deemed disposition. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really reasonable tool. I mean, it really is. It's not attractive. It doesn't get double-digit rate of returns. Well, it doesn't generally, but... Any asset that it returns, you know, mid single digits with no downside over a 45 year period. I mean, if you looked at, you know, you and I aren't old enough to have owned houses since the 60s, but, you know, my parents' generation, that's when they bought their houses. I mean, those houses, if they held them for a really long time, uh, by the time those people retired and maybe downsized, the rates of return on that house was, you know, mid single digits. And the, the, the dollar value numbers were massive. Um, and so those are the kind of, that's the kind of result you'd expect from a, a whole life policy, much more akin to a real estate, you know, like a, owning a home where you, you forget it, it sits there, but by, when it's, when it's ready, when it, when it, when it matures, when it's fully baked, yeah. um, in the case of a house, you know, when you're at or near or just past retirement, you generally downsize in the case of a whole life policy, the way that it generally is works the best is it is a, as an estate planning tool. It has lots of features in between, but as an estate planning tool, when it's fully baked, it is a very valuable asset class. Um, that is a great tool to have in your quiver. If you've, again, like I said, if you've done all your other planning and you're, you're taken care of, planning for this as a way to transfer excess is a very, very smart way of doing it. So I want to address one final point because you and I had a 
quite a bit of discussion about it. And this comes to the estate planning as well. And we talked about the gender pay gap um, recently, you know, the OMA, and a lot of people have been talking about the fact that there's a gap in pay between male physicians and female physicians. Um, and that is a reality that we're now discussing in our community. Now, given that we've talked about, you know, how does the gender pay gap influence our decision in which strategy to take here? So if I wanted to take a participating life strategy versus invest, uh, sorry, buy term and invest the rest, if I'm meeting this reality that female physicians over the lifespan of their career do actually make less money overall in comparison to their male counterparts, is there a strategy that is probably not suitable for them? Or maybe is there one strategy that is better, even though both are okay? Notwithstanding that 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 pay gap is an issue that is that that is needs resolution, it does not affect the recommendation one way or the other. Um, reason I'm saying that is the person that does the strategy is going to be the final decision, the deciding factor. Am I, in this case, this physician, willing to do A, B, C, D in order to get where I want to go? That is a personal decision. And so if, you know, going through and doing a, a, a sort of a proper and fundamental analysis around whether by term and invested difference is something that can be achieved, um, the circumstances of sort of your compensation wouldn't change that. What would change it is the profile of your expenses relative to your, sorry, your compensation relative to your expenses. So if, if anybody whether male or female, but if, if there is a, you know, given that the pay gap exists, if I'm earning less money and I have to support the same expenses, then, uh, then I, I've got some decisions to make about how much money I commit to a strategy. So that's a, that's a different issue than which one of these strategies is better or worse. Um, the answer is, you know, making some reasonable assumptions, I think you can say pretty clearly that the whole life strategy from an estate planning point of view and from a uh, contingency planning point of view between now and age 90 is superior. But if I don't have the money to dedicate to it, I don't have the money to dedicate to it. I just can't. So I may have to then buy term insurance just to cover my responsibilities. So it is, it's not so much a pay gap issue as a pay gap issue relative to how's that affected the family. And if it negatively affects the family's not savings, then term insurance is priced for a purpose. It is high volume insurance. It's not meant to be long-term insurance. So I get a lot of insurance out of term for a short period of time at a good price. I get a terrible price for the long-term. Whole life is the opposite. I get a terrible price in the near term relative to the other available options. Mm -hmm. But over the long-term, it is a better wealth planning decision. So the question, that you would want to come back to in any situation, if there's any strain or stress on anybody's planning, which in this case, it, from your question is the pay gap, it is, is there liquidity there to do what you want? And if not, don't back yourself into a corner by making a long-term commitment that you can't. Certainly go ahead and buy term and invest the difference for now because the difference is smaller. In, in our, what we're assuming is the difference is smaller. That lower pay is, uh, is prohibiting choice. And that's the unfairness of that lower pay. If the lower, if lower pay and, and there are lower expenses and we have the same amount of surplus left over, which gets us back to the math that we did about this, then there's no difference for that individual. 
um, because you are building up a greater surplus over time. You are building up a better estate value from all angles, even though my pay may be disadvantaged, this is a better decision if it's the right one at the outset. And then that comes to that expenses versus compensation, which is, which is a two-dimensional problem that people with a pay gap will feel, but the pay gap itself is only one dimensional. It doesn't, it doesn't on its own, it's not the issue. The second dimension we, we always need to explore amongst lots of other things. Right. Uh, I'm going to add one more thing though, is that if the pay gap is there, then, and I, I'm making a very broad brush statement here, but would those people be wet, less willing to take as much risk as all equities? That again, it's the second, you need the second dimension. You always need to know, am I able to save? So my savings is not relative to my earnings. My savings is relative to my earnings minus my, my expenses. So I think that's that. And so there, the issue um, you know, as to career risk that you're talking about might be something that is more functional, which is, is the pay gap that I have something that, that provides a risk to my career, my, my perceived, uh, you know, the, the, the longevity and the continuity of the income that I'm expecting. Then you've got a bunch of different decisions. That again is a personal one though. And it would be something you'd want to walk through when you're making a decision. If you have a concern about the longevity of your career for one way or another, um, and you feel as though you're, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a discriminatory force at work and that's, what's going to limit it. Then, then you would, you would be, you'd be ill-advised to commit to a long-term strategy until you did not feel that way. So I think that might, that might be kind of a way of jumping, taking your observation into, into a more pragmatic approach, but I think it's always comes back to uh, income, less expenses equals savings. And if that is a robust number, then you're, you've got lots of choice. And for anybody in any career, anywhere, if those numbers provide a robust surplus, you've got all sorts of options. You've got all sorts of flexibility, you've all, all sorts of opportunities. If those are tight, then you don't. Um, and that's, that's the dimension that is the most important. I, I think you, uh, I agree with you. You know, finally, I think you make a good point is that we should not be looking at, you know, participating life strategy versus term life strategy with one focus in mind, but looking at it from, like you say, the multiple aspects of it in mind and figure out how it applies to me at the time that I'm going to be implementing this strategy. And so people are saying, well, invest term, sorry, buy term and invest the rest as a objecting to something else and everybody should buy term and invest the rest then that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Or I should just go participating in life and forget about term. That's also a bad way of thinking about it. Right. And I very conveniently picked an age where this decision is easy. Most of us have, have, you know, we've settled into our careers. We've settled into our family situation. We've settled into our real estate situation in their mid-40s. If this person was 35 or 30, um, you know, in some cases in 30, your career is not even fully formed. Um, 35, you may not have, you know, achieved your, your sort of where you're going to end up practicing. All of those, those variables, you may have only purchased your first of three houses. Those, that's why we, I didn't, uh, when I offered the age that we were an example, I did want to take out of that complexity all of those variables because the, the issue is not a planning one in the buy term and invest the rest, getting back to the issue, which is buy term and invest the difference is this mathematical argument that people make that they can do better than X or Y 
which isn't the right way of approaching it. If you want to take the numbers, by term and invested difference is tough to do. It's even tougher to do with other inceptions pointed in. If we go back to age 30, I would say by term, because you don't have a difference to invest. You're likely spending everything you have on buying real estate, starting a family, whatever that is. 35, same thing, 40, same thing. Your surplus is unlikely to occur in a robust way until later in life. And so you're right to say there is 100% always a place for term insurance in somebody's planning in the same way that there is 100% a, a place for whole life in somebody's planning as well. Um, and neither of them should be used to deny the validity of the other. That would be, that would be that's faulty also. Well, on that, we will end the discussion, uh, Jamie. I really appreciate your analysis on this and the graph really tells a million words and uh, this good discussion about, you know, the philosophy and it's not just about the product because at the end of the day, this is a product and a strategy, but we're talking about philosophy and we're talking about planning and we're talking about customization and individualization. So uh, thank you very much for bringing that into the discussion. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me again, Vu. These, these are great discussions and I think you're doing a great job for, for your colleagues as well. Well, that is it, boys and girls. And I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion and back and forth with Jamie talking about this very controversial idea and also this very uh, polarizing uh, strategies between one term and invested difference versus whole life. As you can see, there is no right answer for everyone. There's no one fit all type of solution. But I think I want to just caution the audience that if people say all the bad things about participating life or whole life and they tell you just by term and investor difference, well, this is also a one size fit all type of strategy. And be really careful with all these gurus from all these podcasts that you hear and from different uh, groups on social media that really just promotes the term and invest the rest type of strategy. As you can see, there is no one size fits all here. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. And if you liked the content and the show, please subscribe and share it with your friends so that they also can learn from the different available content. If you have any comments or feedback, please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.